Hello everyone, welcome back to History Snippets. I'm Aaron, and today I'm going to be reading a little snippet from history to my friend Sky, who has no clue who, what, or when I'm going to be reading about. Welcome, Sky. Hello. Oh boy. Yeah. Excited about this one. Yeah, because I, I've, I've, he has no clue other than I told him that today we're going to be talking about a spy, and mm -hmm. uh, that that kind of rubs you the right way. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm excited. These stories have been great. Okay, so uh, let's get straight into it. Today we're going to be talking about Juan Pujol Garcia. I am in love. <laughs> <laughs> now, he goes by the name Pujol, so that's what we're going to be using for the rest of the story. Okay. So he went by his middle name. Um, mm -hmm. Now, Pujol was born in Barcelona on February 14th. Um, let's see here. Yeah, February 14th, 1914. His father was Juan, which is Juan but with an O-A, Pujol, and his mother was Mercedes Guijarro Garcia. Now, to anyone who's actually a native uh, Spanish speaker, I am going to be massacring these names throughout the story, and I'm apologizing in advance for my ignorance, but I'm from Texas, so it's genetic. Yeah. Even, even I don't know Spanish that well, but, like, I think it's Puyol. I'm Puyol? not 100 Really? I, I'm not sure. I don't know. How like, do they pronounce J's? Is it, is it Puyol? Oh, is it, is it J? Yeah, his name is P-U-J-O-L. Oh, it's weird. Usually it's with a Y, the ones yeah, I've yeah. seen. Yeah. So Pujol, right? That's what I was thinking. Uh, Pujol? Probably. I don't know. Pujol. 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 Okay, no, I'm not. I'm not it's Pujol. I'll just go with Pujol. I hope that's just okay. Just stick with your, like, Texan yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So his parents, uh, Juan and Mercedes, were from an Andalusian town of Motril, which was in the province of Granada. His father was a Catalan man who owned a dye factory. Pujol himself was the third of four children. When he turned seven, his parents sent him to Valdemia, which was a Catholic boarding school 20 miles outside of Barcelona. Pujol would stay here for the next four years. The school had a rule that students could only leave on Sundays, and only if they had a visitor. So Pujol's father made the trip every week, so he got out and got some fresh air and stuff. Which is kind of nice, it was good, a good yeah. father. Because that's a 20-mile trek every Sunday, that's, that's a bit, you know. That's good dad. Yeah. You don't have a lot of those in these stories, I don't no, think. No, usually they're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Pujol's mother was from an extremely strict Roman Catholic family, but his father was quite the opposite. He was a well-studied man with heavily liberal political beliefs. When Pujol was 13, he was transferred to a school in Barcelona that was run by his father's, and everywhere I read about this, card-playing friend. That was his identifying trait. Anytime that this guy was mentioned, it was the card-playing guy. So, okay. his name was Mosin Josep. Pujol stayed at the school for three years until he got into an argument with a teacher and decided he was done with school. He bailed from the school and bounced from occupation to occupation. First, he became an apprentice at a local hardware store. Then that went to hell. So, he ran a cinema for uh, about a year. Then that went to shit. So, he started studying a degree, and hold on, at the Royal Poultry School in Arenas de Mar, working towards a degree in animal husbandry with a specialization in chicken. <laughs> you want me to read that again? He started studying at the Royal Poultry School. Like, it's, a, it's an entire <laughs> yeah, school yeah. dedicated to chickens and ducks and, and geese and... Uh, I didn't... Well, I, how, why does that exist? I don't know why. No, more important, why did that stop existing? Amazing. Yeah, I'm thinking a bachelor in chicken. <laughs> it's the best. 
Yeah, I'll be taking my PhD in Turkey. It's a bit more advanced, and I'll be a real Turkey expert then. Yeah. That's amazing. I have a PhD. I have a doctorate in... Uh, in... <laughs> oh, my God. I'm the duck doctor. The doctorate. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Uh. Um... Now, in 1931, as Pujol was near the end of his poultry degree, his father passed away. He left his family well provided for due to the passive income from the factory. Pujol himself was forced to uh, be sent off to do six months of compulsory military service in a cavalry unit, uh, the 7th Regiment of Light Artillery. He did not like it. Pujol said he was unsuited for a military career, saying that he hated horse riding and that he lacked the, quote, essential qualities of loyalty, generosity, and honor. So he's honest. He's pretty straightforward. He's, no, I'm not loyal, generous, or honorable at all. <laughs> After uh, his six months in the cavalry unit, he returned to Barcelona, where he started a poultry farm to the north of the city. Right, right. A few years later, in 1936, the Spanish Civil War broke out. Pujol's father's factory was taken over by its workers, putting a stop to the passive income to him and his family. Shortly after, his sister's fiancé was arrested by Republican forces. And then, uh, about a week later, his sister and his mother were arrested and accused of being counter-revolutionaries, and they were also taken by the revolutionary forces. Luckily, a distant relative of the family had connections in the trade union and was able to rescue them from Republican captivity. Then, after all of this, Pujol was ordered to serve on the Republican side. Weirdly enough, after the treatment of his family, he didn't really like the Republicans or their government. So he hid at his girlfriend's house. Unsurprisingly, this is probably the first place the police searched for him. So, obviously, it took like a day and they raided his <laughs> girlfriend's house and he was captured and imprisoned. Pujol was in prison for about a week before a traditionalist resistance group, the Socorro Blanco, seized the prison and let all the Republican prisoners free. Pujol hid with the Socorro Blanco, and they helped him forge fake identity papers. These papers were identical to his real ones, with one single change. His age went from 22 to a bit over 60, making him <laughs> ineligible for military service. <laughs> This seems like the worst cover ever to me because, like, he looks 22. Uh, and according to the documents, he's like, no, I'm 60, I promise. I just look real good for my age. Broccoli. Yeah, <laughs> no, like, the, the military recruiters will come by. Uh, papers, please. Oh, yes. Here you go. It's got, um, like, a fake cane. Uh, no, 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 no. He he's, hasn't changed anything. He, he's just standing there. there look, <laughs> uh, let's see. 60 years old. Um, well, everything checks out. Thank you there. <laughs> Have a nice day, sir. <laughs> I don't know, I, I'm, I'm guessing maybe there wasn't any, like, facial checks. I guess it was, like, in city archives, the military was just like, okay, get every paper of everyone under 30 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they probably never knocked at his door. No, because they were if they did that, it would have been yeah, obvious. Yeah. Like, the pictures of him when he was 22. Yeah. Like, he, he actually doesn't even look 22. He looks, like, 17. He looks really young for his age. So it's just, okay. like, seems to be, like, the worst cover ever. Uh, yeah. Anyways, um, once those papers were acquired, he went on to run a new poultry farm. But this was one that had been requisitioned by the local Republican government. So, from what I understood, basically it was taken from a traditionalist yeah. family and then given to him. Mm -hmm. The farm went terribly. It was not economically viable, and the Republican committee was constantly badgering him about his shipments. So, it all soon just kind of collapsed and fell apart. And this only fueled his 
hatred towards the Republicans and communism in general. Now, without a farm and any money, Pujol rejoined the Republican side using some false papers, applying to lay telegraph cables along the front lines. He hoped to earn his first paycheck and then desert. During the Battle of Ebro on September 1938, he deserted to the Nationalist side after receiving his first paycheck. Sadly, Pujol found out that the Nationalist side, the fascists, were not much better. He didn't agree with their ideologies, and he found out that if he spoke out about it, they would beat him. Not long after, uh, not long after, Pujol's colonel overheard him saying that he felt some sympathy for the monarchy during the whole civil war. The colonel had Pujol beaten and imprisoned and then discharged. So, after the civil war ended, Pujol was left for a deep hatred for both sides. He disagreed with both communism and fascism. He would go on to say he was proud to have served on both sides without firing a single bullet for either. Mm-hmm. After his discharge, Pujol met his future wife, Araceli Gonzalez, and they had a child together called Juan Fernando after his father. Mm-hmm. A year later, in 1939, World War II began. Now, Pujol hated both the Reich and the Soviet Union and decided that he must join the war and make a contribution, quote, for the good of humanity. Spain was currently under the rule of the Franco regime, which was a fascist dictatorship, so he wanted out. Pujol decided that the best way to help was to contact Britain and apply to be a spy for them. (laughs) He contacted the British Secret Service three times, once even via his wife, but they ignored him every time. But Pujol was not about to give up so easily. So he decided he would apply to the Germans as a spy. Then, once he got connected as a German agent, he'd go back to the British and (laughs) offer his services as a double agent. (laughs) Uh, it's actually kind of smart. Oh, it's so good. Also, I wonder why the British didn't want this poultry farmer to be their, like, spy. In Spain! In Barcelona! (laughs) (laughs) So, Pujol began creating a fake identity for himself as a Spanish government official who was fanatically pro-Nazi. He fooled a local printer into believing he worked for the Spanish embassy in Lisbon, and the printer made a fake Spanish diplomatic passport without actually knowing he was making a fake Spanish diplomatic passport. (laughs) Then Pujol forged travel documents that stated he regularly traveled to and from London on official governmental business. Once all of this was order, Pujol contacted a German intelligence officer stationed in Madrid called Friedrich Knapperate. Now, Friedrich was an Abwehr, a high-ranking German informant. His codename was Frederico. Let's talk about that for a second. His name is Friedrich, and his secret codename is Frederico. Now, the codename is usually how people don't know who you are. Yeah, but if you no, just no, no, took no. your name no, no, in a different perfect. language, that's a terrible codename. <laughs> uh, I am uh, Skyo. You cannot detect me. <laughs> it's a terrible codename. Oh, God. Anyways, um, so Pujol told Friedrich that he was a Spanish governmental official working at the Spanish embassy in Lisbon, that he could travel to London with no cause for suspicion, and that he loved Nazis. Then he showed Friedrich all the fake papers and the passports and the travel logs. Friedrich was totally convinced and hired Pujol on the spot. Over the next days, he gave Pujol a crash course in espionage. Pujol learned secret writing, codes, and stealth, 
And then he was given a kind of spy starter kit. It contained a bottle of invisible ink, a code book, and 600 pounds. Hmm. Friedrich ordered Pujol to move to Britain and start recruiting a bunch of uh, British Nazi sympathizers and establish a full-bone spy network working under the German government. So Pujol left immediately for Lisbon, which is not London. Yeah, yeah. Let's when, he ar- when he arrived, he bought a tourist guide to Britain called the Blue Guide to England, reference books on London and British culture, a ton of British magazines... And then he found British newsreels in the Lisbon Public Library. Using all of this, he began writing fake reports to Friedrich and Germany, pretending that he was indeed traveling all over Britain and that he was establishing a whole team of fake sub-agents working for him. His reports were so detailed, the characters were so real, that the Germans were certain Pujol must be writing from London. Pujol even kept track of his non-existent travel expenses, such as food, hotel bills, and train tickets, which he had the Germans compensate him for. Yep. Uh... Since Pujol didn't understand the pre-decimal currency system in Britain of pounds and shillings and pence, he simply just listed the stuff he claimed to have bought, and the Germans paid what they assumed the items cost. Now, as said, Pujol created an extensive list of imaginary spies living all across Britain working for him. But since he never actually visited UK, he made a ton of mistakes. For example, he claimed one of his agents was in Glasgow and, quote, would do anything for a liter of wine, not knowing the Scottish famously drank ale or beer, not wine. Luckily, the Germans didn't know this either, (laughs) so it went unnoticed. Uh, the Scots, yeah, no, they're known for drinking wine. That, that's all they drink, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. I, uh, I, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't find anyone in Scotland drinking wine. Yeah, probably not, especially not at the time. No, at the time, you were probably burned to the cross for that. Heathen! <laughs> so, soon, Pujol's fake reports ended up being intercepted by Ultra, the British Secret Intelligence Service. They look so real that the British counterintelligence service, M15, launched a full-blown countrywide spy hunt for the non-existent <laughs> spy network Pujol was running. Oh, God. In my head, they're, like, not really good spy names. Like, he, he made up, like, these British people, but he has, to- like, no oh, clue. So we'll, he's get, just... we'll get into the characters in a bit. Okay, they're okay. They're terrible. Yeah. I am excited. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're all terrible. Okay. But, like, his reports were just so detailed. And, you know, he was really good at at writing it as if he was there. Um, So, anyways, in February 1942, soon after the United States had gotten involved in the war, Pujol contacted U.S. Navy Lieutenant Patrick Demorest in the Naval's attache's office in Lisbon and told him what he'd been doing for the past months. Demorest was shocked by how effective Pujol had been and set up contact between him and M15. Pujol then sent a report to the Germans about a fake convoy taking place in their territory, and the Kriegsmarine, one of the three official branches of the German government, launched a huge engagement to hunt down this non-existent convoy, wasting a shitload of resources. M15 was sold. They had to have Pujol. (laughs) 
<laughs> basically like a third of the the German military was dealing with this convoy for like a week. <laughs> I love just... learning about these stories in history because you picture like oh World War Two like the the highest elite soldiers and everything mm-hmm. and then you have like this random Spanish dude who's just writing uh, fake letters. A poultry, that just... farmer. <laughs> a poultry farmer. Poultry farmer. Amazing. Yeah. So, on April twenty fourth, nineteen forty two, Pujol was moved to Britain. He was given the code name Bovril, which is the name of a type of beef broth concentrate used in soups. I. I have no idea why he was that was chosen for him, but both real. Later, Pujol passed a security check being conducted by an M16 officer, Desmond Bristow, who noticed his difficulty speaking English. Bristow set up Pujol with an M15 officer named Tomas Harris, who spoke fluent Spanish. Pujol was put to work as a double agent amongst the XX Committee's Aegis. The XX Committee was known as the Double Cross Committee and was a large collection of double agents. Then Pujol's wife and child were moved to Britain with him. Now, Pujol was unique among the agents in the XX committee. He was the only one who was not a turned enemy spy, instead being a double agent who never actually worked for the Germans to begin with. This meant that he was the only member of the XX committee who wasn't constantly watched and had his reports checked in case he was actually a triple agent, and M15 loved him for this. (laughs) Now, a man named Cyril Mills was put as Pujol's case officer. And when he saw just how deep Pujol's fake information had penetrated the Germans' archives, he changed Pujol's codename to Garbo, which was the surname of a Swedish actress who was, quote, the best actor in the world. <laughs> From here on, his codename would be Garbo, but we're still going to call him Pujol. Yep. Cyril Mills only stayed as a case officer for a couple of days before the issue of him not speaking a word of Spanish became too big and he promoted Tomas Harris from Pujol's translator to his case officer. Pujol and Harris then got to work writing reports. The cooperation between Pujol and Harris was described as, quote, one of those rare partnerships between two exceptionally gifted men whose inventive genius inspired and complemented each other. Together, they created 27 fake agents, each with full-fledged, detailed life stories and documents to back it up, from birth documents to, uh, like, travel documents and fake degrees from schools and property purchases that they own buildings. And these 27 agents were spread all across Britain. Uh, a couple examples, a Venezuelan living in Glasgow, a turned U.S. Army sergeant, a Welsh nationalist leading a group of fascists called the Brothers of the Aryan World Order, and an Indian fanatic called Dick. <laughs> now that was them being drunk in one evening. So, so what, what are we doing next? Uh, let's, let, let, let's do an Indian one. We haven't done that one yet. Yeah. yeah. So what, what should we call him? Uh, okay. Do you know any Indian names? Uh, we can we can do Richard. Richard. Yeah. No. 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 That, that's like it needs to be like snappier. Snappier. Right. We're paying by the letter. How about Dick? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd there like we it. go. There it's we go. It's a very go. Indian name, eh? Yeah, gold. It's very, very Indian, isn't it? There you go. There you go. Get, my, get my British on. Uh, well, we're speaking Spanish, though, so. I'm not even going to try that. <laughs> no, no, no. Poodle and Harris wrote 315 letters, each with around 2,000 words from these fake spies to the Germans. At this point, the Germans were relying so much on Pujol that they set up a dedicated post office in Lisbon for him to send his reports to. It's his own personal post office, an entire office now. 
Pujol and Harris pumped out so many reports, so much information at such high quality that the German archive handlers were overwhelmed. The Germans then decided they didn't need any other spies than Pujol and his network, and they made no attempts to hire any more spies in the UK for the rest of the war. Pujol was all they needed. Wow. <laughs> that is just wow. Oh. <laughs> it's so good. When you're such a good bullshit artist that other people are like, well, he's the only one we need. Like, he's yeah. bullshitting. On the scale of 27 people. Jeez. Like, it's insane. Like, I was that reading is... some of these reports. They're not short, snappy ones. He was writing, like, full-fledged document reports, detailed truth. It was all bullshit. So, Pujol's reports were a mix of pure fantasy, um, some real military information that was of very little value, um, and then actual real military information of high value that was purposely delayed so it was unusable for the Germans. Mm. So he would report troop movements, but he would make sure that would arrive like an hour after the troops yeah, yeah. had actually moved through the area. Mm. For example, on November 1942, Operation Torch was about to begin. This is a large invasion of British troops to the North African front and was basically the D-Day of Africa in World War II. Pujol wrote a report from one of his fake agents in Scotland, who was stationed on the River Clyde, who didn't exist. The, the agent said he'd seen a large convoy of troop ships and warships all leaving the port, all of them painted in a desert Mediterranean camouflage. Pujol dated the letter before the landings would occur, and then he posted it via airmail. The British intelligence then purposely delayed the letter so that it arrived the day after the troops landed and the invasion had begun, making it useless. The Germans wrote back to Pujol, quote, We're sorry that your letter arrived too late, but your last <laughs> reports were magnificent. <laughs> uh, because he would basically, have it exactly... He's such a good spy for us. He gives the best info. It's just a stupid airmail. Keeps yeah. sending them too late. <clears throat> well, he did report the exact number of troops yeah, yeah, yeah. and what they were. It was just a day later. So yeah. Germans were like, ah, oh, shoot. Well, I mean, his information is credible. It's quality yeah. stuff. It just arrived too late. Like, he, it's a genius. <laughs> it's brilliant, yeah. <clears throat> Sometimes... Pujol would have to make up reasons why his agents had been unable to report information to the Germans. Um, especially if that information was readily available and there's like no reason his agent wouldn't be able to, to report it. Uh, one time, Pujol had not reported a massive troop movement out from the port of a town in which he said he had an agent. The Germans later found out about the troops <clears throat> and they were angry Pujol had not told them. <clears throat> Excuse me. Pujol responded and told the Germans his agent had fallen ill the night before and missed the event. A couple of days later, to make sure the Germans really believed him, Pujol sadly reported, quote, November 19th at Boodle, after long illness, aged 52, William Maximilian, private funeral, no flowers please. Pujol even had the local newspaper of the town of Boodle print a fake obituary for the non-existent <laughs> agent who never died. <laughs> the Germans responded with a long letter of condolences. Then Pujol asked the Germans to pay a hefty pension to the agent's widow, <laughs> who was also fake, which they did. <laughs> oh, that is absolute gold. Oh. 
the account of the agent's widow was naturally just Pujol's private account. Of course. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> it just made him just, just rubbing salt in the wound. Uh. <clears throat> so, up to now, Pujol had been communicating with the Germans via a courier, a KLM Royal Dutch airline pilot who was being paid to carry the messages in and out of Lisbon. Because of this, the letters were limited to arrive based on the flight schedule of the KLM planes. In 1943, the Germans said the letters were too slow for them and they needed faster communication lines. They wanted radio. So Pujol and Harris set up radio connection with Germany and just so happened to find a Nazi sympathizing radio operator that exact same day. <clears throat> the operator's name was Alaric Arabel and was entirely fictitious. This was naturally just another fake character in the Pujol's spy screenplay. From here on, all communication between Pujol and the German high command was done via radio. This, I, I, I didn't actually write it here, but like this was a huge complication for him. Because he was balancing basically 28 fake characters and their lives. And he'd have to make up excuses why this guy couldn't answer, this guy couldn't answer. With mm. letters, he like usually had a couple days to like plan yeah, some stuff. Yeah. With radio, he'd have like minutes. So he had to pre-plan exactly how all these reports were going out and his excuses, and it became, like, super complicated and intricate. But him and Harris managed it via <laughs> radio. So, because they couldn't blame delays on letters anymore. Yeah, yeah obviously, the time yeah. To plan, so, yeah. Um, Pujol then said that for the radio communications to be safe, Alaric would need the strongest encryption codes the Germans had. Oh my god. So naturally, the Germans sent their best encryption code and system to Pujol, which he immediately handed to the codebreakers at Bleachley Park. <laughs> Among these codebreakers was Alan Turing. Yep, I would, yep. Pujol's encrypted reports were sent to Madrid, manually decrypted, and then re-encrypted with an Enigma machine before transmission to Berlin. This gave Alan Turing and his team of codebreakers the most important puzzle piece to breaking the encryption code the original unencrypted text, which was Pujol's reports. Now, Alan Turing is an outstanding human being. He literally invented the computer, which he used to crack the Enigma code. Um, according to experts, the cracking of the Germans' encryption led to the war ending two to three years early, saving an estimated 14 to 21 million lives. Now, obviously, Turing himself deserves a ton of credit and respect for this achievement. But I would like to point out that this all would not have been possible without Pujol's reports and actually getting the encryption codes in the first place. Uh, if anyone does want to see a really fucking good movie, go check out The Imitation Game 2014. Yeah, uh, it's about Turing great. and his code breakers, and it's just a good movie. Mm. See, I don't want to take away from what Turing did, but Pujol's the guy who basically made this happen. So, on January 1944, the Germans contacted Pujol. They said they'd heard of a massive invasion of Europe and told him to report anything he found. What the Germans had managed to kind of pick up on was Operation Overlord, now commonly known as D-Day. To make sure that the invasion of Normandy wouldn't be spoiled, the Allied nations established Operation Fortitude. This was a massive deception strategy during the preparations for D-Day to feed as much false information to the Germans as they could so they were as unprepared as possible for when D-Day actually happened. And naturally, Pujol was right in the middle of Operation Fortitude. Between January 1944 and D-Day itself, Pujol sent over 500 radio messages to Germany, often more than 20 a day. As the Allies planned the Normandy Beach invasion, the military leaders decided it was critical that the Germans be misled to think the Allies were actually going to invade the Strait of Dover, 
a couple miles to the north. In order to keep up his lie as a spy, Pujol was ordered to warn the Germans of the invasion, but he was to send it too late for them to make use for it. Pujol arranged with the German radio operators to stand by at 3 a.m. on June 6, 1944, for an urgent message from one of his operators. Pujol used the cover that he was waiting for an agent to arrive with the critical information as an excuse for the delay. Now, for some reason, the German operator failed to keep the scheduled appointment, and he didn't appear until 8 a.m., five oh, hours no. late. At which point, Pujol had been making good use of the extra time, spamming them with extra messages and reports and troop movements, all just a couple, like half an hour too late to be usable. When the German <laughs> finally arrived on the radio, Pujol was disgusted with them. He told the Germans he was, he was super uh, annoyed that they'd missed his first messages, saying, quote, I cannot accept excuses or negligence. Were it not for my ideals, I would abandon the work. <laughs> the Germans apologized profusely. Due to the false information, the German forces were now split between Normandy and the Strait of Dover, making it easier for the Allies to succeed. Now, a couple of days after D-Day, on June 9th, I mean, it's still ongoing, but, like, the troops arrived, and there's, like, this huge battle on the beaches and all that, and they're slowly going inland. It was decided that Pujol was going to trick the Germans again. This time, he was going to trick the Germans into believing that D-Day was not the actual invasion of Europe but rather a diversion from a larger invasion that was going to happen in the North Calis area in a couple days from now. <laughs> Puchel reported that he had spoken with many of his top agents and that they had found 75 more army divisions in Britain waiting to head for Europe. Not only that, the first U.S. Army group consisting of 11 divisions, 150,000 men between them, led by the famous General George Patton, had also arrived and was waiting in the southeast of Britain to invade along with the British forces. The first U.S. Army group did not exist. <laughs> and in reality, the British only had about 50 divisions left in Britain, none of them ready to leave. Yep. These reports were so important, they were sent straight to Adolf Hitler and the Oberkommando der Wehrmacht, the German High Command. Now, after the war... When the Allies went through the German High Command secret war documents, they found 62 different reports from Pujol. <laughs> <laughs> like their most coveted oh. secret documents, 62 oh Pujol reports were in there. <laughs> I mean, he was the only British spy network they had, oh, yeah. basically. No, and yeah. he was deep. Like, he was in their system. <laughs> to give the deception more credibility... Fields and camps all across South Britain were filled with fake planes just made out of balsa wood, inflatable tanks, like literally just gigantic rubber inflated tanks, okay? yeah. and vans filled with radio equipment would drive around filling the air with fake radio chatter. When the Germans <laughs> sent scouting planes over South Britain to confirm Pujol's reports, they returned and said, quote, all reports received in the last week from Alaric Arabel, Pujol's uh -huh. yeah. uh, radio operator, undertaking have been confirmed and without exception are to be described as exceptionally valuable. <laughs> the Germans fully believed there was another larger force waiting to invade Europe and that D-Day was just a diversion. <clears throat> the German commander-in-chief, Field Marshal Gerd von Rundstedt, sent special orders to General Erwin Rommel in Pass de Calais to not take his troops down to Normandy and help with the invasion there. 
They were so worried about this non-existent second invasion, they kept two armored divisions of tanks and 19 full infantry divisions at Pastecales for two months in preparation for the second invasion. There were more troops stationed in Pastecales than there were at Normandy during D-Day for two months straight. That is a shitload of troops and tanks that were not allowed to join the beaches of Normandy and fight back the Allies and just stood there for two months. Holy shit. There were, I, I was reading multiple quotes from historians saying that if these, if, if his army, um, if Rommel's army had been allowed to go down to D-Day, the Allies would have been crushed. No, like, no question about it. Yeah. I mean, no, D-Day was just, a close matter. Yeah, two armored divisions. That's like, I don't know, like 15,000 tanks or some bullshit and 19 yeah. full infantry divisions. That's a fuckload. Like, the fact that they were there, and not only just during D-Day, they were there for two months. Like, they weren't even as... After D-Day, the Allies kept going inland, and they never had to deal with these guys at Kali's who were just sitting there, arms crossed, foot-tapping for two months, awaiting the non-existent invasion. Oh god, this, this British force is coming, men. Be prepared, be prepared. And the best, the first U.S. Army <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, company. Like, they're sending their biggest elites, like, <laughs> this is the frontier, boys. <laughs> it's so good. Later in June, the Germans began launching the V-1 flying bomb rockets towards England. They ordered Pujol to report on how effective the bombs were, where they landed, if they missed, and by how much they missed so they could recalibrate. Pujol obviously could not report any of this critical information to the Germans, so he pretended to get arrested. He returned to work a few days later, sending an apology letter to the Germans for his absence. The Germans seeing that he had been arrested, wanted to honor Pujol for his hard work. And a couple days later, not even a couple, about a month later, on July 29, 1944, they awarded him an Iron Cross second class for his <laughs> services to the German war effort. The Iron Cl Cross second class is yeah. far higher than the normal Iron Cross. It is a high-ranking respected honor only given to frontline fighting soldiers. It had to be personally authorized by Hitler himself and signed by Hitler to be given out. So you got an iron cross straight from Hitler. Yeah. For faking to be arrested and working for them. <clears throat> Pujol received word of the honor over radio, and he got the physical medal after the war from one of the German archive handlers he'd been in contact with. Pujol replied to the Germans expressing his, quote, humble thanks, and that he was, quote, truly unworthy. A few months Literally. Quite yeah, literally. <laughs> literally unworthy. A few months later, Pujol received an MBE, a Most Excellent Order of the British Empire from King George IV himself, a medal awarded for extreme chivalry. The Nazis never found out they had been fooled throughout the war, and Pujol is the only person to have received such high-ranking medals from both sides during World War II. The Germans ended up paying Pujol around half a million dollars to support his network of fake agents, which contained 27 at its largest. <clears throat> After the war, Pujol was rather worried about revenge from surviving Nazis, so he left for Angola and pretended to die from malaria in 1949. Yep. Then he moved to Langunilas in Venezuela, where he opened a book and gift store, staying low and living anonymous. Thomas Harris, his companion, moved to Spain and sadly passed away in a car accident in 1964. In 1971, 22 years after Pujol had gone into hiding, a British politician named Rupert Allison became interested in a spy named in many documents as Garbo. 
<laughs> for years, he interviewed various M15 officers trying to find someone who knew who the fuck Garbo was. It took 14 more years. In 1984, Anthony Blunt, a friend of Tomas Harris, provided Garbo's full name as, quote, either Juan or Jose Garcia. The politician had an assistant call every J. Garcia in the Barcelona phone book, which led him to Pujol's nephew, which eventually led him to Pujol himself. Pujol and Allison met in New Orleans on the 20th of May, 1984. 35 years after he'd gone into hiding, he was finally discovered. Allison convinced Pujol to travel to London. The whole ordeal was a worldwide phenomenon. He never was honored for what he did in the war. Until 35 years later, newspapers across the world had headlines such as D-Day's Greatest Secret Revealed and Hero They Only Knew Is Garbo Finally Found. In London, he was received by Prince Philip at Buckingham Palace, where they shared a long dinner. After that, he was invited to visit the Special Forces Club, where he reunited with many of his former colleagues. And a few weeks later, on the 40th anniversary of D-Day, he was personally invited to visit the beaches of Normandy, where he paid his respects to the dead. Pujol moved back to Carcass in 1988, where he passed away. He is buried in Caroni, a town inside the Henry Pittier National Park by the Caribbean Sea. Wow. That is the tale of Juan Pujol Garcia, the spy who won World War II. Ah. <laughs> Took them 35 years to find him. He never I was love honored. It. Like, after the war was over, it's just like, yeah, no, no, can't find the guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he just went and opened a bookstore, and he, he yeah. never wanted honors for it. Like, they had to track no. him out. That politician had to, like, literally pull him out of Venezuela to London so he could be honored for what he did. He was so humble. That's nuts. I know it started just because he didn't like either the fascist or the uh, the communist, basically. It was like, eh, don't like them, gonna go over there. Mm-hmm. That's nuts. <laughs> still love that he was a poultry farmer i really wish he went like to venezuela and just opened a chicken farm (laughs) like that would have been like the perfect ending to the story (laughs) Uh. oh god oh well okay guys uh until next time